Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we open God's Word to James chapter 4, let's, uh, brothers and sisters, let's ask God very directly uh, to open us. So let's bow for prayer. Living God and eternal God, show us here in this hour that all things are shadows and you alone are substance. Living God, assure us now in this hour of worship that all things are shifting, but you alone are our steady anchor. Spirit of God, teach us right now in this sermon that all things are ignorance, but you are wisdom from above. Convict us now, not so much about our circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ to be formed in us. Heavenly Father, do this for Jesus' sake in this church. Amen. From James chapter 4 today, we're going to talk about conflict, quarrels, fights, harsh disagreements, and all of that. We'll say maybe five things, five truths about conflict, and the first thing to say about it is not something that you would disagree with even if you don't believe the Bible. I think everybody would agree with this. And the first thing to say about conflict is that it's common. Conflict is all too common all around us. Conflict is everywhere. It's in our homes. It's on our streets. It's in our national politics. It's in our international relations. It's in the church. It's in the workplace. I often hear people say that they uh, hate their job or they hate going to work. And usually behind that, is some person, a coworker or a boss, who makes being there difficult because of that conflict, that animosity. There's conflict in our homes. I know that according to the Church of Hallmark, it's Valentine's Day, but what can I say? There, there are many, not a few, many marriages in the church that look okay from 20 yards away. But inside, they're riddled with the bullet holes of conflict. And I don't, if you'd let me say it this way, I'm not worried about your marriage if you're having conflict. Because there is an answer to that. If you'll come talk to me, if, if you'll come talk to someone in the church and open up the Bible, we can work on that. But my heart is at great pain for the marriages who used to have conflict, but now they've just given up, just dead. There's conflict in the home. There's certainly conflict in the church. I suppose I could give an example of conflict that I've had in this church within the last three days or so, but maybe that would cut a little too close to home. So I'll tell you a more general story. My former pastor, the, the man who taught me how to preach, John MacArthur, he's been pastor in, at Grace Church in California for, what, 51 years, 53 years, something like that now. So he often tells the story of when he was like 30 
at the end of his first year of ministry there, so this would have been like 1972 or something like that, that uh, at that time the church had one chapel and one kind of education building with a few classrooms in it. And the church was growing so much that with young families that they needed to use the biggest rooms in the education room for the children's ministry. But the seniors' Sunday school class was in the biggest room. The elders and the deacons, they didn't cancel the senior Sunday school class. All they did was move them from the big room to the little room that they still fit in fine because there were 80 kids and only a little handful of seniors. So Pastor John tells the story that on the day, the Sunday that this move happened, the senior Sunday school class couldn't get into the room because it was already filled with three and four and five-year-olds. But they had their Sunday school class around the doorway of that classroom. They didn't go to the other room and they didn't go to the worship service. What an immature conflict for seniors to foment. What a what an unnecessary thing to get torn up about. But you know, there are other conflicts that are not nearly as asinine or as out there as that. There are conflicts that are harming you and me right now. Listen to this verse. It's from 2 Corinthians 12. Don't listen to it as a, like, as a verse out of the Bible, so to speak. This, this verse is just a guy like me, much better than me, but a pastor like me, uh, telling real people like you, I'm going to come see you and this is what's going to happen. So imagine, if I know you well, imagine this is me talking to you, or if, if I'm not the pastor that knows you the best, but Wayne knows you better or somebody else, imagine them talking to you like this. This is what he says. I am afraid that when I come to meet with you, I will not find you as I wish, but I will find that there will be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Wow. I mean, you would love it if I sent you an email or a phone call like, I'm going to come meet with you. <laughs> and when I come to meet you, I expect that I will find love, generosity, my little pony cupcakes, everything good. But what if I sent you an email or a phone call and said, I'm going to come meet with you, and I am very concerned that when I come and meet with you, I will find hostility, conceit, and every manner of disorder. But an, a, an actual guy like me said that to actual church members like you. And the guy who said it was not pessimistic and he wasn't exaggerating because that stuff happens in the church every day. Conflict is all too common with outside the church and within the church. Our text is James 4, verses 1 and 2 and 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We see the word quarrel and the word fight in verse 1. Then we see the word war. 
And then we even see the word murder in verse 2. I don't think people were like literally murdering each other. He's using that for the foment of ferocious anger that church members had toward each other. And then he says again, fighting and quarreling in verse 2. What, would, what actually would cause whiplash, because don't, don't pretend there's not a chapter and a white space there, what would actually cause whiplash is the verse that comes right before this one, because he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the preceding paragraph, he talked in verse 14 of chapter 3 about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But then he talked about the wisdom from above that's gentle and peaceful, and it's a harvest of peace sown by those who make peace. As James talks about how common conflict is, as we observe in the text, I hope you see there are two question marks in verse 1. Two sharp as a quill questions. Two questions that are like a needle that'll go all the way into your bone marrow. It's almost ironic that James is talking about the danger of conflict. But for my money, there's almost no biblical author who's quicker to confront and cause a conflict than James. You read the book of James, you can't go two or three verses without him just walloping you, you personally upside the head. There's a kind of preaching that's vague enough to make everybody feel like the truth is being said, but nobody feel bothered. But there is a specificity in preaching that causes conviction. And that's the kind of preaching, the only kind of preaching that James seems to know. He goes right at it. And he asks these two questions, and they both identify the source of the trouble. The first question is diagnostic. What is the cause of it? The second question, is it not the passions that are at war within you? It challenges us to see how correct the diagnosis is. And then from verse 1, we come down to verse 2. And I just want you to observe in verse 2 that little word, so, that little two-word, so, that shows up twice. You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This so sets up this verse as two parallel sets of sequences or two parallel sets of inevitable outcomes, like this. You pull the trigger, so the bullet fires out of the gun. That's what he says twice here. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel and try to steal it from each other. And then verses, the second half of verse two and all of verse three give two incriminating reasons why these things are so. And the reasons are not vague and general, like I wish the UN would do something. The reasons are so specific that they cause personal soul-searching conviction. And notice the, the double move from the human heart. This is happening here. We're talking about the human heart, and there's a double move. Relationships with other people, relationship with God. The human heart, and we take this double move from relationships with other people to relationship with God. 
in verses one and two, we're talking about wrong relationships between Christians. You, you argue and you fight each other. So he's saying in verses one and two, something makes our relationships with each other toxic. But then in the end of verse two and all of verse three, he shifts to the relationship with God because he's not talking in verse three about asking each other for things. He's very clearly talking about prayer. And so this double move on the human heart says, if your relationships with other people are filled with bullying, meanness, selfishness, coveting, and grasping, your relationship with God is hollow and hypocritical and empty. I, I, well, I love the Bible for a thousand reasons. I find new reasons all the time. But one of the reasons I love the Bible is that it always makes this double move from the human heart. The Bible is so human. It recognizes how constant conflict is and how frequent it is, and it doesn't dodge it. But the Bible is so divine. And almost every other page in the Bible, don't you see this over and over? God, God, how many times does God say in the Old Testament, you gathered together to go to the feasts and to go to worship, but your hearts were never with me. How many times does God say in the New Testament, you go to church and you say that you love me, but there's a poor person and you leave them starving to death in the cold. Don't, God says, don't be coming around here telling me you love me. See, the human heart, we always try to make this move like, well, we really love God who we can't see, and the Bible never lets you make that single move. It's always a double move. The reality of your relationship with God is always vindicated and proven in your horizontal relationships with the people around you. I love that the Bible does that. I tell you, I listened to Darren's sermon two weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians 5, and I just gloried in how that sermon made that double move. The whole point was set your hope on the return of Christ. And every one of the dozens of applications from that point was in the difficult circumstances that you face today, your hope in Christ will enable you to make them through those. And my heart sung as yours did as I listened to Brennan's sermon last week. From, from Psalm 150 and how worship and seeing the greatness of God is the way, the only way for the church to be the bundle of relationships that it is supposed to be. We always make this double move from the human heart to our relationships with others and our relationship with God. And James does that here. And he does that specifically about conflict. Well, if the first thing we can say about conflict is that it's common, it's way too common. The second thing, clearly, that this, that this addresses is conflict's cause. And the truth that we could say about its cause is that conflict's cause is found within me. Conflict's cause is found within me. Verse 1, what causes quarrels? Oh, stop right there after those three words. What a great question. I love the questions that the Bible asks. Do, would you agree with me that your angle of approach to a situation almost determines ahead of time 
what good is going to come from the situation? For me, a good 75% of the time that I'm watching a political debate or something like that, I just, it's useless because neither person is, has the right angle of approach to even what the problem is, much less to come up with a solution. The angle of approach is everything. And James hits the, the only crucial angle of approach that there is, which is what is the cause of conflict? What a great question. What an important question. What an inescapable question, but at the same time, what a question that every human heart will try to paper over. What a biblical question. What a, what a can only be answered by an omniscient God kind of question. There are a dozen things every week that I scratch my little head. What is the cause of that? And I do not know. I do not know. But beloved, the God we worship has never had to guess about the cause of anything. He sees it all. He, he, he comprehends it all. He doesn't learn it all. He knows it all before it happens. What is the cause of our conflict? We all know what it's like to suffer in a conflict. We all know what it's like when someone sends us an angry text or an angry letter. We know what that feels like. But none of us can rightly discern what's the, what's the cause of that, but God can. And he wants us to follow his lead in knowing this and learning it. The surface answers are always loudest. They always have the most emotional resonance, so we always go to them first. You know, he's, he's actually going to talk in this paragraph a bit about being worldly. The Bible has several definitions of worldliness. One, I, I think, very important definition of worldliness is we're worldly when the world's answers seem plausible to us. They seem believable to us. They seem satisfying to us. That means that we're conformed to the world. And when the world gives reasons for conflict and we, and we in the church agree with all of those reasons, this is worldly thinking. We have to take God's, God's answer to the question, what is the cause? God cares about the true cause, which is in the heart. So why is there conflict and what is its cause? Three, two most popular reasons that are worldly and aren't the real reason, and then the, the answer that James gives. And actually, each one of them can be easily illustrated just with my hands. The first one, we just take our hands and sweep them around us and say, the cause of my trouble is my circumstances. The cause of the conflict is the tough times that I'm in. The cause of the conflict is the external pressure that's all around me. The cause of the conflict is the situational setbacks. And if my situation didn't have so many setbacks in it, I wouldn't be in a conflict. That's the most common thing to say about conflict, unless we choose the second one, which may be more common. And if the first was just sweeping my hands around, you probably can already guess what the second one is. Pointing my finger. The reason that I'm in a conflict is because you are the way you are. She is the way she is. Or wickedly, could we not 
could we not take even a whole race or a whole class of people? How wicked and worldly is that? Say, they're the problem. This is not how the Bible answers the question, what is the cause of conflict? The only answer that James gives here is to take my hand and place it on the top of my cardia, my heart. What is the cause? The cause is the passions that are at war within me. My problem is me. My cravings, my desires. I preach God's word for 40, 50 minutes on Sunday. If you're doing it right, then you not only hear the preaching, but then you go into ABF and you pray about the word and you dialogue together about the word. And this is, this is wonderful, but it is the case that for the rest of the day on Sunday and then for all day, Monday through Saturday, all of us, your pastor and you included, when we get into conflict, we go like this, it's the, it's the circumstances, or we go like this, it's that, and none of us automatically all the time goes like this. But that's the case. And if you don't like that, and already here in the, in the opening of the sermon, you already don't like that, you're like, well, there's other Bible passages that say other things about conflict. Well, of course there are other Bible passages. I ain't going to preach on the whole thing in one sermon. I grant you there are other Bible passages. But I'm telling you, this is the Bible passage that we have open right now for this church in the spirit of God has brought us here. And I'm just, if you want to argue with James here, I'll simply say this. Read James 4. Read it twice. Read it 10 times. Read it in Latin. Read it in Korean. Read it in Greek. Whatever you know how to do, do it. And you find me the verse where James explains conflict like this. And he says, it's your circumstances that cause it. You find me the verse where James explains comment, conflict with a pointed finger. It's not there. It's not there. He says that it's caused by my own heart. By my own heart. Listen. Beloved church, listen, when your Bible is closed, then your personal reasons that keep you emotionally happy about your conflict and your situation in it, they can win the day. Beloved, when your Bible is closed, your feelings can guide you. Brothers and sisters, I don't mean to minimize the pain that's caused by conflict in this, but I'll also say this. When your Bible is closed, your reaction to the pain you're in can lead you and guide you. But this is not God's will. When the Bible is closed, your excuses and your plausible deniabilities seem oh so convincing. But when the Bible is open, then and only then, the Spirit of God can reveal to your very spirit what is the cause of your conflict. And it isn't out there. It's in here. It's in here. So, this is perhaps the kind of sermon that you need to bring with you and take home and use in your times of conflict. So let me give you three 
diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself as you take these things home. Diagnostic question number one. Do I listen to myself explain what's wrong or do I listen to God's word for an explanation? We all tell ourselves a story, don't we? Do I listen to myself explain what's wrong or do I let God's word explain the situation? Second diagnostic question. Uh, I don't like this second question. I want to pass from it, but the spirit doesn't give me that. Second diagnostic question. Do I use the Bible to cut at others or do I let the Bible carve into me? Do I use the Bible to cut at others or do I let the Bible carve into me? That's our second diagnostic question. And the third one is maybe just another way of saying the first question. It's just this, uh, do I tell myself stories about my problems that keep me feeling good or do I let God's word give me the straight story? Do I tell myself stories about my problems that keep me feeling good or do I let God's word tell the straight story? We have to come to God's word saying, I'm not here for emotional protection from the spirit of God. I'm here for revelation. Well, if that's what causes conflict, the third thing that we could say about conflict, and we get this from the word passions in verse one, that's also translated lusts, it's also translated pleasures, it's also translated cravings. So to keep with the letter C, we would say cravings. My inner cravings are my problem. My inner desires are my problem. My inner passions are my problem. The word pleasures or cravings in the Greek is the word hedonai, from what we get hedonism. You know, God giving us pleasures is not a bad thing. The, uh, the sexual relationship, the pleasure of sexual intimacy is perhaps the easiest way to explain this. God created that, God ordained that, and it is a pleasure that is licit and moral and righteous within the commandments of God. That is within a covenant marriage of one man and one woman. But seeking that pleasure outside of God's will through fornication or adultery or homosexual activity is both illicit and immoral. And many pleasures are like that. Some pleasures are just forbidden, but many are a good thing, but we want them inordinately or we want them wrongly. But the cravings and lustings, it could be anything. It could be for sexual, it could be for power, it could be for being left alone, it could be for being right or being noticed. We all have different cravings. We all have different cravings. And James is saying your inner cravings are why you fight your fights the way you do. James used the same word in James 1.14 to say each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires, his own cravings. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. We had this word in, from the lips of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, that unforgettable parable of the soils. Listen how Jesus uses this word in Luke 8 verse 14. As for the seed that fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear the word, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
Jesus says there, when the word of God is preached, your craving for pleasures keeps the word of God from growing the fruit in your life that God wants it to. Same word in Titus 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures or cravings, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says in Titus 3 that these pleasures keep us enslaved before our conversion. James says in James chapter 4, verse 1, that our cravings are what cause us to have conflict with one another in the church. So we've got to identify the true source, and it's my cravings. My cravings within my own heart are the true source. So to say it in a sentence, you could say this. When a person is fighting with others, that fight is the overflow of the constant war within that person, himself or herself. When a person is fighting with others, that fight is the overflow of the constant war within that person's own heart. Or to take it out of the didactic language of third person and put it in the very crisp uh, kind of homiletical language of the second person, when you are fighting with others, that fight that you are in is the overflow of the constant war that is happening in your heart. So to take this, to reflect on it, a couple of suggested diagnostic questions. This one's maybe the most important of all, this question. When you're in a conflict, ask yourself this question. What selfish craving is driving me to win this fight? What selfish craving is driving me in this argument, in this conflict? What selfish craving is driving me in this conflict? Or a second diagnostic question, this may be the same way to come at the same thing, is to, to ask yourself in prayer, to ask the Spirit of God to help you see this question. Why am I pushing so hard? Why do I want, what do I want, and why do I want it so badly? What do I want, and why do I want it so badly that I want to crush this other person to get it? Why am I pushing so hard? What do I want? Why do I want it so badly? Well, if the third is about these cravings, maybe the fourth thing that we can say about conflict is from the word covet. In verse 2, and then he says that our coveting causes us to fight and quarrel with each other, but then it causes us to ask God and not get what we're asking from God. So I take coveting to mean this, wanting and asking and then not getting. Wanting and asking and then not getting. And it, I want to I treat verse 3 with verses 4 and 5, so I want to maybe get to that next week. I'm not going to give a full treatment of verse 3 today, but I want to include it because there's a thought package here in the apostles in the apostles' argument to, to convict us that, needs, that we need to get. And it's, it's, uh, it's, almost, it's almost humorous in a, in a very human and ironic way. So he's saying, if you follow his thought here, verse 1, he's saying, you want something, and you decide, I'm going to get it. 
And so you fight each other to try to steal it from each other. But you don't get it. So then, middle of verse 2, you decide, oh, wait a minute. Well, I'm a Christian. So if I want something, I should pray about it. And it's as if James is saying, yeah, prayer would be the solution. But in actual practice, for people like you, prayer ain't going to do a thing. That's essentially what he's saying. Your selfish heart that you were fighting with others with is the same as it was, and God is not going to respond to that kind of prayer. He says, prayer is the solution, but in the actual situation that you are in, it's not going to work for you because your heart has to change. Your spirit has to change. Your cravings have to change. So again, to treat this uh, more next week, but I think what he's getting at is that prayer should be, you see what he says in verse eight? I'm sorry, verse six. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We're going to get to verses six and seven. Admittedly, the rate at which I exposit the word Probably everybody in New York is going to be vaccinated by the time we get to six and seven, but be that as it may, the point that he's making is submission and humility. And if church, brothers and sisters, people of God, if we could, if we could just see this about prayer, it's really perhaps the most profound point we could make about prayer. There are true things about prayer like this. I want things that I don't know how to get for myself, so I ask God for them. That's true, but that's not profound. That's a, that's a pretty basic understanding of prayer. Perhaps the most profound thing that we could say about prayer is that when we pray, prayer is meant to make us into persons who have a submissive and a humble heart. It is as if the purpose of prayer isn't just that I can always get what I want. It is as if the purpose of prayer, if you'd let me use this language, is to show God, even though he knows all things, that your heart is submissive and humble. In prayer, when we bow in prayer, is it not the case that the most profound prayer ever uttered by human lips, truly human lips on this planet, was this prayer. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Maybe there's some other text about wrestling with God in prayer. Here in James 4, prayer is not wrestling with God. Prayer is saying to God, God, I surrender. I thought I needed this. I thought I needed that. But now in prayer, God, the only thing I need is you. Is you. And you alone. My prayer, if I ever let you read my prayer journal, which I never will, it's always saying, God, I've got all of these desires, and these are all the reasons why all of these desires are good. But God, I know I don't need all those desires met, but I know I need you. That's it. 
Not my will, but thine be done. In prayer, we bow before God and we finally say, can you imagine how free you would be if this week, every day this week, what you pray to God is this, God, my life is not a competition with the people around me. God, they can win. I don't care. God, my life is not an argument between me and you. God, you can win. God, your kingdom come. God, your will be done. And God, I rest. This is the kind of person that, that, that is the most Christ-like of all and is not the purpose of prayer to conform us to the character of our Christ. Well, the fifth and final thing to say about conflict is certainly that, Christ. The fifth and final point would simply be Christ in me is the only answer to the problem within. Christ in me is the only answer to the problem within. My problem is me, my sin, my cravings, my pride, my selfishness. And Jesus Christ, who is the only one for whom receiving all things wouldn't be selfish, but would be right, for he is glorious above all. Yet he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus laid down his all. He laid down his life to serve us and give us life. And if Jesus has done that, as people, as persons who have received that life from Jesus, now we're going to run around on this planet like chickens with our heads cut off, craving this and craving that and craving the other thing. Why? Why? Why would you burn a birthright, burn your birthright for this, this red porridge? You have Christ. This, the way that James opens it up in chapter 4, verse 1, I think I said it's almost like whiplash between the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 1, but actually it isn't. Because you see what he says? He says, good fruits in verse 17. And then he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So it's almost as if he's saying in verse 1, in verse 1, the cause of quarrels and fights is that my heart, my heart is soil in which coveting, craving, fighting, and quarreling grows. That is me. That's me. And your heart is soil in which coveting, craving, and all that grows. The only way for that to change is for all of that soil to be lifted up and taken away and for you to get a new heart. And so James 3.18 says that the harvest comes when the new heart is given so that, so that this is my life now, right? This is my life. I live, but no longer me, but Christ in me. But I'm living, but is Christ in me. If it was only me, only thing growing out of my life would be conflict, 
craving and quarreling. But because I'm still me, but it's not just me, it's Christ in me, there's a chance now that out of my life can grow something like sacrifice, like love, like joy, that are not virtues that I possess out of my character, but they are Christ blossoming them in me. This is the reality of the gospel. You have no chance of settling your conflicts if you're settling them out of your old heart. You need to come to Christ. I mean, if you are here, or if someone listens to this sermon online, you are not at peace with God if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Nothing else matters without that. And those of you who are covenant members of the church and you've been born again by Christ, it's way past time to run around looking for this and that. We have Christ. The heavenly wisdom has come down from above not to be served, but to serve. And to say, not my will, but thine be done. And so let Jesus Christ be your peace and change the conflict in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray. We have cravings and quarrels, so many conflicts. And Lord, help us to stop blaming the circumstances around us and the other people and help us to confess from the heart and grant to us the very spirit of Christ which is a spirit of selflessness, submission, humility. Oh, Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray and hearing them answer, hearing them provide, hearing give life, give peace. Do this, that Jesus Christ might be glorified in his church. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.